Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Whether your dietary concerns are based on weight loss, muscle gain, heart health, whatever, goodness knows, there's so much information and professional advice out there, it's hard to know who to believe and frankly, what to eat. On this week's show, we're hearing from the experts on everything from demystifying that number one buzzword, keto, to the truth about my friend, butter. Dr. Mignon Mary of The Remedy Room gives us the keto 411, while Nina Teicholtz lets us in on what she calls the big fat surprise. And how can you have a cocktail lounge when there's absolutely not a drop of alcohol involved? Wait until you hear the compelling story of one of New York City's hottest new concepts, Listen Bar, where the music's great and the drinks are all alcohol-free. We're getting healthy in both mind and body on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Lorelai Bendrovsky, and I am the founder and owner of Listen Bar in New York. New York City is on the vanguard of a global movement that's mixing up the way people are thinking about drinking. As a new generation of bargoers seek out more wellness-oriented lifestyles, there's been an increasing demand for drinks with little or zero alcohol in them. Bar menus are expanding to include booze-free cocktails that are just as delicious as their more spirited siblings. And as this wellness-minded movement continues to grow, new social spaces have been popping up around the country that remove booze from the equation entirely. Launched in October 2018, Listen Bar is a pop-up alcohol-free bar currently open one night a month in downtown New York. Founder Lorelai Bendrovsky talked to us about the bar concept and why she's motivated to give it a permanent home. The story of Listen Bar starts five years ago, and it starts on a dare. So five years ago, a friend of mine dared me to take a month off of drinking. And this is the friend who, uh, who never drinks and who in college I would be the one sort of, uh, you know, nudging like, come on, just try it. And so he kind of flipped it on me. And of course, I went into this challenge with a pretty terrible attitude and a sort of like arrogant, like, fine, I'll show you. But it was all about like, proving that I could do it rather than actually expecting to get something out of it. And boy, was I surprised. Um, what I realized when I took time away from drinking, first of all, I realized how much I was drinking. 
I thought that I was consciously choosing and then I realized that it was a force of habit and the only thing that I really experienced around me. And so when I pulled myself out of that current, I was able to recognize how powerful the current really is and how deeply embedded drinking is in our social lives, uh, especially in a city like New York. And all of the little narratives that it plays into, like being a social lubricant and how like it's this gateway to a more fun you. And when I put the responsibility on myself to be that fun me without having a shortcut, I was funner. I liked it better. I woke up feeling better. I remembered all the crazy things I did and I stood by them in the morning. And it was a really amazing, empowering feeling. But at the same time, I was finding that, oh, I really want to go out, but I don't really feel like drinking. What should we do? Like head scratch moment. It's like we can go to dinner or theater all of a sudden it was like what's there even out there and everything felt hard everything felt planned and like a big commitment you didn't have really the same kind of casual option like let's just grab a drink and oftentimes I think that's what we really say when we say let's just grab a drink we mean let's have a casual interaction that may last you know, 45 minutes and may extend into three hours. And, uh, you know, where we're just kind of being with each other. And I really wanted to have a space that catered to my experience of wanting to do that without necessarily making me consume alcohol just as like a price of entry and a price of belonging into the bar space. Take us through a virtual experience of going into listen bar and how it would be to visit there well listen bar is a booze-free bar which means that our entire menu is alcohol free whether it's the cocktails or the beer um, everything is alcohol free and everything has been designed that way rather than you know substituting for something that was originally imagined around alcohol you're coming in and then all of a sudden you come downstairs and the music is really groovy. Um, that's like probably the first thing you notice. You're like, ooh, like this place is fun and it's it's dimly lit. It's kind of divey. It smells like popcorn. We've got free popcorn. Probably more packed than you expect it. And everyone's there to have a good time and they're pretty easy to talk to. So you get to the bar and um, you notice that the bartenders all look like they're having a really good time. They're probably shaking their booties. And the other thing that makes Listen Bar really special is that all of our bartenders are musicians. So while the recipes to our cocktails are created by you know top-tier mixologists, um, the people actually getting behind the bars, as happens in a lot of places, are uh, musicians. And so working at Listen Bar is a way to connect with their fan, with like new fan base um, and, uh, you know, showcase their music through the playlists that they pick, uh, show their own music, show their friends music and their influences. And so when we take alcohol off of the menu, we also really think about how when we take it out of the interactions, what do we put in its place? So when you sit down at the bar beyond just like, what are you drinking? 
there's an icebreaker for you. You can ask like, what band are you in? You can start a conversation with someone from across the bar about the song that's playing. Especially like when it comes to not drinking, typically when you're not drinking, the last thing you wanna talk about is not drinking. And so having a clear path where that conversation can start that has nothing to do with the presence or absence of alcohol and it's entirely about something that we can actually be excited about that brings us together. And so there's a real focus on how do you engineer what makes a bar great as this like social casual space and recognize that it's not always about the alcohol in a drink you're serving. I would love to hear what your customers say to you. And if there are any tales you can share with me of ways that perhaps the Listen Bar has changed people's lives. Well, I remember um, hearing that someone was getting teary-eyed because they hadn't been going out to bars. This was someone who um, was sober, I think like 15 years or something. and. Like they felt like they were finally able to be out again and like they hadn't had like a fun drink and they were holding, we have this one drink that's called the She Pretty and it's super cute. It's like foamy and pink and it's also delicious. Um, But yeah, so she was holding the She Pretty and was just getting emotional, just being able to like hold a grown up, sophisticated cocktail without feeling left out. People are so impressed with the drinks at Listen Bar because people expect, you know, a kind of like childish, sugary, over-the-top drink that feels like it's almost like an apology in a cup. It's like, ah, sorry I couldn't make you something better. Here's this. And it really doesn't have to be. Um, I've had people tell me, we just did a pride party. I've had people tell me that ours was the only pride event that they were attending and how much it meant to them. And I think a lot of times the people who feel like Listen Bar is a space that they had been looking for, a space that had been missing for them, are the most emotional stories. But I get equal amounts of joy from skeptics. I love when people come in prepared to kind of hate on it because the concept just sounds like, why would you want that? And then like those moments when they go like, oh, it really is a bar. Or like, oh, I get it. Those little like understated, you know, penny drops are some of the most like heart filling for me. I know you've mentioned the musicians and the music, but it seems to me like maybe at the Listen Bar, there's a lot more listening going on than maybe at your average corner bar where the cocktails are flowing. I love that. And it's very much kind of why, you know, why we're called that. One of our coasters is just like a big smile and it says music and conversation. And I like to joke that even though what's on the menu are these incredible drinks, what we're really serving is music and conversation. And everything in our environment is designed to facilitate the experience of having a nightlife without alcohol involved is something that we haven't really created space for. 
It's certainly something I hadn't created space for. And I think it's really hard to evaluate the value of something that you haven't even um, created room for in your life. It's also one of the reasons why I draw a big distinction between um, Listen Bar being an alcohol-free bar and being a sober bar, because we are not a sober bar. We do not expect everyone who comes through the door to be sober, and we are not preaching for people to be sober when they leave. You know, like if you go from Listen Bar to taking shots, great, you know, like awesome. But what I am a big believer of is that in an ideal world, our drinking culture it would be what I call drink optional. And that would mean that you would feel equally comfortable and you would have as many choices available to you whether you choose to drink or whether you choose not to. Like the two options would be equal. I also thought about how like people say like, oh, I'm just going to pop in for a drink. Why don't people just think like, oh, you know, listen, bar, like, let me just pop in for a couple songs, you know, and just see how that goes. Like stick around for a couple songs and you might see that it turns into a couple more and there's like, you know, maybe three drinks along the way. But it's never really about the drink. It's just giving yourself that mental excuse of, wandering into a space and not knowing exactly like what it's going to give you. Lorelai, I simply can't wait to wander into Listen Bar myself one day. So please keep a seat for me here. Always, always. You are VIP. <laughs> Lorelai Bandrovsky, founder and owner of Listen Bar in New York City. Next, Dr. Mignon Mary stops by our studio to explain why she thinks the low-carb keto diet is more than just a passing fad. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Brennan's Restaurant, home of the original breakfast at Brennan's and Flaming Bananas Foster. Breakfast, lunch, dinner and private events at 417 Royal Street in the French Quarter. Hi, I'm Dr. Mignon Mary. I'm the owner of The Remedy Room and an internal medicine physician. If you're looking to lose weight or eat better, you may be considering a new diet. There's the paleo diet, the vegan diet, intermittent fasting, 
But with so much dissenting information over these choices, it's tough to know which regime is right for you. The keto diet is currently enjoying its moment as the diet du jour, igniting a fierce scientific debate over its risks and benefits. Dr. Mignon Mary joined us in the studio to fill us in on keto and whether or not this low-carb diet is just a passing craze. So keto and intermittent fasting are two of the top searched words on Google last year. And really? I think it's about people taking power into their own hands and figuring things out for themselves. And I don't think that this is a movement. I think that what's happening is people's awareness is, is coming to um, recognize that we are very unhealthy, right? A lot of us have chronic illness and inflammation. And I think when people originally think about keto, they think of Atkins, Dr. Atkins. When he wrote the book, he's trying to explain to people that it's not the fat that's making us fat. And let me just back up a little bit. So my father is a physician who was also friends with Dr. Robert Atkins, but it's not Atkins who thought of this diet. There's actually a doctor named Dr. Banting who it was based off of. If you look back at what we used to recommend to diabetics in the early 1900s, before they even discovered insulin, it was this style diet. It was yeah. very little sugar, very little pies and custards. It's mostly vegetables and nuts and seeds and, and um, meats and fish. And, and low obviously carb because you're getting a lot of hidden sugar and bread and stuff. Well, and that's sort of where we, we started to have some trouble develop, right? So in the 1980s, when we start telling people from the government's perspective of what we should eat, right, and we have now marketing firms making up things like, hey, you should eat five fruits and veggies a day. And you have Post Cereal saying, hey, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And you have people who used to not eat breakfast. Now we're insisting that they eat breakfast. Um, what we've created is the average American eats 17 times a day. So they think they're eating three times, but with the amount of snacking that we're doing, right, we are actually putting something to our lips that's not water and breaking the so-called fast. So breakfast is breaking the fast. And actually at night, we're going into ketosis at night, every night. And babies actually live in ketosis, right? So they're drinking the mother's milk, which has sugar in it, but actually has a larger portion of fat, right? Because we're trying to build their brains and our brains are made of fat. So the conference I just came back from says, we're actually, our natural state is to be in ketosis, to be using our own fat for fuel. And so ketosis is basically a state where you are using the fat and the ketones are a breakdown product of the fat. Now, in all honesty, the brain prefers ketones over glucose if it has its druthers because the ketones are like rocket fuel and you're sharp and you're quick. And so I think, you know, back in the Atkins days and now what people are experiencing even today is that they feel more energetic, they sleep better, they're aches and pains go away, and their mood is better, right? And then the bonus and cherry on top is that they're losing weight. And uh, I mean, a large portion of us have a lot of fat that we should be tapping into. But because we're eating 17 times a day, right? And because they're now telling us where there's really not a lot of studies to prove that eating five and six meals a day and what we tell our diabetics is you've got to keep eating, we're perpetuating the problem. So what we like to teach patients is we're not trying to get you to eat less. We're not trying to ration your food. We just want you to eat less often. And the reason is we're trying to reduce inflammation at the end of the day, right? It's all about turning down the volume of all the things that are hurting us. And insulin, which comes out to help us to reduce the blood sugar in our blood, when it comes out, it's very inflaming. And over time, if we continue to eat this way, we're all going to become insulin resistant, which then leads to diabetes. And so 
What I love about what's happening with the keto movement, or you can call it a fad, I don't think it's going to be. I think it's going to help people to change their diet in a way that they find what's their carb upper limit. Does that make sense? Like what's the most they can have and stay in ketosis or close to ketosis and live a healthier life with less sugar on board. And so I am just saying if we can pick wiser choices of things that come from the earth, right, one ingredient items that don't have a lot of processing, we're going to have a better future. We're going to have better longevity. And by reducing insulin, we can reduce the amount of diabetes that we have. And it's really just a matter of timing, what does this mean okay, when means, your body is in ketosis so, and how would one even know? So here's how we know. So there's two fuel sources the body can use. We can either use glucose or sugar and all carbs are sugar. At the end of the day, whether you put an apple in your mouth, a bowl of ice cream, um, they all end up becoming sugar. Now, when you have fat or protein, those things don't turn into sugar as readily, okay? And fat gets broken down into the ketone bodies we spoke of earlier, the rocket fuel. And so I want you to think of the two fuels as like diesel for sugar and like solar power for the ketones or something even stronger, hydrogen, (laughs) really turbo uh, energy. I call sugar the white devil in my family because it is a drug. And so if I were abusing drugs like cocaine or heroin, the way that I abuse sugar, you would have me in rehab or we'd have an intervention. But because it's a socially acceptable drug, we are now all addicted, right? Because for 40 years, we doctors have told you that fat is bad, right? To start to eat this fake food like margarine and I can't believe it's not butter. Do you think your body knows what to do with this stuff? I mean, these are chemicals, right? So I've been in practice 20 years. And I think people have been struggling with their weight for many more years than that. And it's not as simple as you just need to exercise more and eat less. That's not what it's about because this, you know, breast of chicken is not the same as this box of Oreos. And so though we might be able to divvy out, you know, the same 300 calories, they're not the same chemically. And like I said, once you chew it and swallow it. Okay, so there's three ways to check your ketones. There's urine. You can check the strips. You can check your breath. And you can check your blood. What I love about the blood meter, and it's not for everybody, it's expensive, but just so you can figure out what they call N equals 1, an experiment of poppy tooker, what makes poppy tooker's blood sugar rise, what makes your ketones rise, what makes them fall, you're going to know for yourself because you're going to check your blood and you're going to say, this is what happens to my glucose, this is what happens to my ketones, and this is safe for me, right? So we can't make blanket statements in medicine because guess what? We're all different. That's the art of the medicine. And so we're so wrapped up in all the science and all the background of all these million studies that I think we're all aware that you can basically have a study say whatever you want it to say. There's a lot of corruption in every area of life, and medicine included. I have seen again and again stories about people who are eating less, period, as a lifestyle and doing some fasting and how that is resulting in great longevity. It has helped my practice. I would say of the things that I've done, like you have monumental things that you do in life. So I've been teaching keto my whole practice of medicine, my whole life. And in New Orleans, that's a really tough sell. Although we do have a lot of access to, you know, meats and cheese and things that are on keto and vegetables. Actually, there's very few vegetables at restaurants, (laughs) um, but if they're not fried, you know. So um, It has changed my practice to teach patients how to do intermittent fasting. So we talk about the timing. And what I work on is let's just start with no more snacks. Like let's just eat three solid meals a day 
And between the meals, let's just have water. If you want something that you know is something I probably wouldn't agree with, then have it during your breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Okay, let's start there. Then we work on trying to say, okay, when you wake up, well, can you push back breakfast? Can you make dinner earlier? Can you go get the early bird special or cook a little bit earlier or have it ready for you, right? Because what I also don't agree with is here we have kids who are eating lunch and when they get home, they're famished. Well, yeah, because that's actually when dinner should be. It's a four or five hours or so, right, that they should be eating dinner then, not at seven or eight o'clock at night. So we're missing that window. So with intermittent fasting, what we're able to do is show people that, look, you're not going to die. We fast people all the time for colonoscopy is a perfect example. And and we didn't die. We went 24 hours without something and we're okay. And I think the word fasting scares people because they think of long-term fasting. Big, severe things. And then, you know, you have that Catholic culture here. And that's like, you mean 40 days? Right. (laughs) And so we we can live a long time without food if we have salt and potassium and water, but we, we can't live very long without those things. So here's the thing. I feel really strongly, Poppy, that this is going to help to save millions, trillions of dollars in the in the government budget if people start to take, you know, the time and the energy to change their diet a little bit and change how they're eating. And we're going to see the disease processes go down because it's really all just one disease, right, where it's it starts with what we put in our mouth. And so I think um, – it's an amazing – fasting is going to be one of the best tools that we can all learn to do. We're meant to be in a fasted state. Well, thank you. I just am so thrilled to be able to share this story and this concept with my Louisiana Eats listeners. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess my Louisiana – the message must be Louisiana Eats less often. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Thanks Mary. so much, Bob. That was Dr. Mignon Mary, owner of The Remedy Room and internal medicine physician. half of the 20th century, dietary fat was scapegoated as the source of America's health problems. Medical experts and government organizations came up with a new system that advocated a low-fat diet with plenty of vegetables, fruits, and grains. But over the course of 60 years, our health has only gotten worse. There's been a spike in diabetes, obesity, and heart disease, the very same disease we originally set out to obliterate. So what if the system's broken, not us? That's the basic premise of Nina Teicholt's best-selling book, The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet. Nina joined us by phone to help trace this story, which begins in the 1950s, a time when Americans were looking to change their dietary habits. In the 1950s, the nation really faced a growing, terrifying tide of heart disease. It had risen from seemingly out of nowhere in the 1920s to become the nation's number one killer and President Eisenhower himself had a heart attack in 1955 and was out of the Oval Office. So this was a subject that had everyone's attention. And there were a number of theories about what was causing heart disease. One scientist, whose name was Ansel Keys, a pathologist at the University of Minnesota, he 
proposed that it was saturated fats that caused heart disease. They would clog the arteries and cause high cholesterol and thereby cause a heart attack. That was the theory. But he was this very outsized, powerful, charismatic man who managed to get his idea implanted into the American Heart Association and the very first national guidelines telling that it was just middle-aged men to cut back on saturated fats, meat, cheese, butter, dairy, eggs, cut back on those fats as a way to prevent heart disease. Those very first national guidelines were published in 1961. And that was the beginning of our demonization of those kinds of foods. Did you find that there was any big unsaturated fat money that was pushing this? Or was it really just the cult of Dr. Keyes? It was both of those things, I think. There was definitely the hand of big food behind the American Heart Association. The American Heart Association was this sort of sleepy, tiny little cardiology society that was always in financial straits. And in 1948, Procter & Gamble made the American Heart Association the beneficiary of a radio show called The Walking Men Contest. And overnight, millions of dollars flowed into the American Heart Association coffers and transformed it into the national powerhouse that it is today. They opened chapters across the country. They became a huge volunteer organization. And coincidentally, the American Heart Association was recommending that everybody switch to vegetable oils, such as Crisco oil, which was one of the main products of Procter & Gamble. So there has always been the hand of big food behind our nutrition recommendations in the country, and that has been the story throughout history, going back to the 1940s when, when all these early food manufacturers were organizing themselves, and they realized that one of their tactics had to be to influence the whole course of science, nutrition science. But it is also true that the mistakes that have been made in nutrition science seem to me to be primarily ones of science. Scientists taking extremely weak evidence and in the face of this urgent public health problem, really jumping the gun, using weak science to try to come to conclusions that were really just, they just weren't supported by the evidence. And that's been true throughout the history of our nutrition recommendations. The irony is that, you know, they... The American Heart Association comes out with these recommendations, and instead of fixing things, diabetes, obesity, and heart disease all spike while this low-fat diet is being intended to cure these diseases and promote it as such. So could you sort of give us a roadmap for how you think all this irony came about? Well, your observation is absolutely true, which is that Americans are now fatter, more diabetic. The underlying rates of heart disease have hardly dropped at all, even though it seems that we um, have made improvements in how to treat the disease. And even though nutrition experts tell us that we are lazy and eat too much, Americans on the whole really complied with the dietary guidelines that we've been given. And we are not healthier for having done that. And so that you know creates a kind of conundrum that science has to deal with. Why is it that we look so much worse while eating so much more carbohydrates, as we've been told, and fruits and vegetables? And I think the fundamental mistake in our dietary guidelines was telling Americans to cut back on 
foods that had long been at the centerpiece of our dining room tables, meat, cheese, butter, dairy, eggs, they are filling, nutritious foods. They've always been at the center of our dinner plates. In taking those off the plate, we have replaced those clearly with carbohydrates, with more pasta, bread, grains. We now know from the last decade of really good clinical trials that have been done, they clearly unequivocally demonstrate that a diet high in carbohydrates and low in fat produces greater obesity and more higher risk of heart disease and diabetes than a diet that is high in fat and low in carbohydrates. You know, another way of saying that is that Dr. Atkins, even though he was vilified and seen as a fattest diet doctor in his day, was closer to the truth about what would produce weight loss and good health than the low-fat diet that we have been trying to follow for all these years. Well, based on that fact, how should people even know who to believe and what to believe? Um, That is, I think, a very important question in nutrition for our times. Um, And I, I think there is basically a war out there on nutrition going on right now, which is to say that our expert panels, which are controlled by a very small number of what I call nutrition aristocrats who serve on all the same expert panels and really control our dietary policy, they are approaching a line of thought that is really close to a vegan diet. They're ratcheting back their recommendations on saturated fat to be ever lower because they see that the nation is not getting healthier on what they've recommended so far. And by contrast, there is a huge growing movement among scientists and also practitioners of people who are starting to follow a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet and seeing spectacular results. And there are books (laughs) and conferences dedicated to that line of thought. And these are completely diametrically opposed ideas about how to become healthy. The expert community has been moving away from a low-fat diet generally. Um, So there is a kind of welcoming of the message that we can eat more fats. And really it comes down to what we say about saturated fats, red meat and, and cheese and butter. It's just a question of how much and what is healthy. Well, looking into your crystal ball, what would you predict is going to happen to the country if we all start to adopt these habits? Well, I think that one note of caution, if you pursue a high-fat diet, it really is important to keep carbohydrates, sugar, refined carbohydrates, all those carbohydrates low. That's a key factor in, I think, promoting good health, which is to not eat a lot of sugar and that those kinds of calories are unhealthy, clearly. But, you know, meat, cheese, butter, dairy, eggs, cracklins that you have in the South, those (laughs) foods are incredibly dense nutritionally. The combination of protein and fat seem to be highly satiating so that you don't eat as much. You maybe don't eat as many calories. They're full of good nutrients and minerals and I really believe the research shows that we were healthier when we ate a diet higher in those foods and that we would be again if we returned to them. That was Nina Teicholtz, science journalist and author of The Big Fat Surprise. Eat me, eat me, filet mignon, eat me, eat me, eat it all day long, eat a few T-bones till you get your fill. 
keto really a new idea in diet control? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Eat a cow, eat a cow, cause it's good for you. Eat a cow, eat a cow, it's a thing that goes. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. We'd like to welcome our newest sponsor, the St. Tammany Tourist Commission. There's a world of delicious wonder just waiting for us all north of Lake Pontchartrain. And we're going to begin by inviting you all to the first ever Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunch on the North Shore. Neely and Keith Frentz of Lola's Restaurant will be hosting me and a bevy of my beauties at their Covington Restaurant on Sunday, October 20th from 11 a.m. till 2 p.m. There'll be a delicious four-course brunch complete with bubbly cocktail pairings. Of course, a portion of the proceeds will benefit Crescent Care, our charitable partner. Seating's limited, so call the restaurant for your reservations today, 985-892-892. Four four nine two, And to find out where Poppy's pop-up drag brunches will be held next, go to our calendar page at poppytooker.com where you can also order your own copy of Drag Queen Brunch. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question. Brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Is keto really a new idea in diet control? For any of us folks who may have tried various weight control methods over the years, this new keto diet is in many ways reminiscent of our old friend, Dr. Atkins. Remember him? Back in 1972, Dr. Robert Atkins published his seminal work, The Atkins Diet. Here was a new program that urged you to eat bacon, steak, and yes, even my favorite food, butter. I was still in middle school back then, but weight has always been an issue in my life. So my mother happily put me on the Atkins regime, complete with the ketosis strips. Anybody else remember those? Originally intended for use by people with type 1 diabetes, keto strips are used to gauge the level of ketones in the body through a color method. You actually have to pee on the strips, and the resulting color reveals your level of fat-burning ketosis. The darker the color, the higher the ketone levels. By the way, The good doctor did suffer a heart attack in 2002, bringing question to the heart health of his regiment. He died several years later after a fall, resulting in a blow to the head, so we can't blame that on a high-fat diet. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats.
My name is Paul Greenberg. Uh, my latest book is The Omega Principle, Seafood and the Quest for a Long Life and a Healthier Planet. After the enormous success of his first award-winning book, Four Fish, Paul Greenberg could have sat on his laurels and rightfully considered himself the alpha among authors who write about oceans and environmental issues. Instead, he decided to focus on the omega, omega-3 that is. As a supplement, the fatty acid has spurred an industry that brought in an estimated $33 billion in 2016. Paul spent three years investigating all things omega-3 and made some surprising discoveries about the highly popular supplement. You know, the central problem of this book was to try to bring this molecule to life, this omega-3. And I realized that the best way to do it was through good characters and strong locations. So like, in, for example, the Amalfi Coast, uh, I went there because it turns out the very, very first omega-3 supplement was actually an ancient Roman fish sauce called garum, which was made from the rotting guts of fish that were caught in the Mediterranean. Um, and I found a little village on the Amalfi Coast called Chitara, where they make the sort of latter-day equivalent of Roman garum. So I went there to see how it was done, see how it was extracted. And it really kind of led me to this fun kind of picaresque journey with this Italian specialty food importer. But it also led me into such a, you know, much more interesting conversations, discussions about the essence of what makes a healthy diet. And, and in fact, the Mediterranean diet, which is the diet that I concluded is one of the healthiest ways to eat. I think anybody who has studied cooking certainly knows about garum. And to think that that really was where the concept of reduction began. We've sort of become a republic of reductionism? Yep. Yeah, well, so when you talk about reduction, what we're really talking about is taking huge amounts of marine life and boiling it down for its essential chemicals. And you're quite right that the, the Roman garum industry did do that with a large amount of fish that would, they would basically uh, not so much boil but ferment down into the garum sauce that they really loved. But in modern day, or, or you could say in, in the last 300 years, the reduction industry has come about for a lot of different purposes. I mean, the first American reduction industry was really directed at whales. You know, we often think about uh, the sort of Melville days of whaling, where we were going after whales for things like lamp oil and lubricants. But there's this whole other reduction industry that gets born in the early 20th century, where whales were being boiled down primarily to make margarine. Um, you know, remember that all. Remember once upon a time we all thought margarine was the most healthy thing for our hearts. Yes. Um, well, it turns out if you're older than 60 years old, you quite likely have eaten whale at one point or another from being boiled down from whales into margarine. Nowadays, the reduction industry still exists. In fact, one out of every four pounds of fish caught in the entire world is boiled down to make animal feed, to make fertilizer, and most recently, omega-3 supplements. And if you were to take all the fish in the world that are boiled down for reduction, that would be the equivalent of the human weight of the United States boiled down into dust and oil every single year. So how has this happened? How has our human food system turned the land against the sea? Well, it's been a gradual series of steps. Really, the best lens is, is the United States, because when we first arrived, 
we had a country that was basically an omega-3 type country. We had wild game browsing on wild grasses, which produces much higher levels of omega-3s in the meats that we're eating. Um, but we also had abundant seafood and we had abundant estuaries um, and natural systems that fostered the development and the growth of high omega-3 food. When we started to develop the Great Plains um, and we tore up those big, thick prairies with um, grasses that had root structures, sometimes nine or 10 feet deep, we started to basically upset the ability of the natural world to keep itself in balance. We planted, instead of those native grasses, we put in things like corn and soy, very shallow-rooted crops. We over-fertilized them with nitrate and phosphate fertilizers. Those, in turn, washed down into riverways, um, into our estuaries, caused dead zones, caused the erosion of the coastal floodplain. And so, as a result, now what you have are corn-fed and soy-fed pigs and beef and chicken. You have limited amounts of seafood. And in fact, we've gone from an omega-3-based world into an omega-6-based world. Omega-6 is also an essential fatty acid, but it tends to come to us from all these industrial food sources like corn and corn-raised beef, um, soy, those kinds of things. And just to take a step back from a human health perspective, omega-6s and omega-3s are both essential for human health, but in Paleolithic times, they probably would have had a ratio of about 1 to 1. Now we're looking at a ratio of about um, 20 to 1, omega-6 to omega-3. And there are a lot of epidemiologists and dietary people out there who say that that leads us down the pathway of inflammation, which in turn causes all sorts of other deleterious effects on your health, cardiovascular disease, neurological diseases. So it's a very interesting way to kind of look at how our food systems have changed and why we're getting unhealthy because of it. Somehow people have been convinced that they can take a pill that will give them the magic omega-3s. And we're kind of at a turning point with that, aren't we? Yeah. Well, the original thing that got people excited about omega-3s, particularly in supplement form, was the finding based on some original research done in the 1970s around Greenland Inuit, where they found that Inuit people who consumed large amounts of fatty marine mammals and, and fatty fish had very low levels of cardiovascular disease. That's what is called in science an observational study. In other words, you're, you're, you're seeing a correlation between two things, but you're not necessarily seeing a causation. Um, what we're seeing in the last few years is some very, very large studies that have been published about omega-3 supplements that are what are called randomized control trials, where you're actually measuring effect of a pill on a particular health outcome. And most recently, Cochrane, um, which is a, a sort of a public service health organization, did a meta-analysis that included over 114,000 subjects, and they found no effect on cardiovascular disease if people are given an omega-3 supplement. So from that point of view, the central hypothesis that omega-3s help your heart, that is starting to fall apart underneath scientific scrutiny. And it does bring into question, well, is this reduction industry even necessary? But there are more studies to come, and I'm going to keep my eye on them as the next months proceed. You actually included recipes because <laughs> we need to get our omega-3s from food if we need to yeah. eat it, right? We do. And, you know, whether or not it's the omega-3 itself that is causing fish eaters to be healthier than non-fish eaters, um, I don't think we 100% know that. But we do know that when we look at large association studies of dietary patterns, that a pescatarian diet 
tends to show lower all-cause mortality and overall decrease in chronic diseases. So I'm not necessarily advocating that everyone go on an all-fish diet, but I do think we could lower the amount of terrestrial meat that we're eating um, and try to get two portions a week of nice oily fish or shellfish, things like mussels, for example, are excellent sources of omega-3s. But it's not just the omega-3s. Seafood, generally speaking, is a much more efficient deliverer of vital nutrients like protein at a much lower calorie cost. So if we can keep that in mind and if we can eat healthy seafood that fulfills a lot of different nutrient requirements of the human body, I think we will end up healthier overall. Paul Greenberg, author of The Omega Principle, Seafood and the Quest for a Long Life and Healthier Planet. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions and hear all about upcoming special events by visiting poppytooker.com. You can find videos, recipes, and even order cookbooks there. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarain's, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from Dickie Brennan's Steakhouse, a local New Orleans steakhouse serving prime beef and Louisiana Wagyu in New Orleans' French Quarter. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. Mm-hmm.